Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Colvin. And I am Louise Planker. You know, these days, every day, every week, you're being hit with a fire hose of new entertainment possibilities. What do you choose? What do you watch? Well, that's our job. Think of us as the curators of your content. We'll give you suggestions on what to watch, and our great guests are a highlight, too. Today, we have a stellar stand-up who's headlined casinos and clubs all around the country for years. Spent many years opening for Jerry Seinfeld. He's written for sitcoms. He's co-written a couple of books. One's dropping soon. Mark Schiff is with us. He's been a friend of mine for years. Can't wait to talk to him, and we'll talk to him in a minute. But Weezy, first, what do you have? Oh, I'm going first. Okay. So uh, my pick is called The Other Two. It's recommended to to us by our dear friend Lisa Arch, and I am just loving it. Two older siblings who have not quite found their actor-dancer adulting footing must now face a world in which their 13-year-old brother is a teen idol. Little brother's TikTok went white hot, and he is now being marketed as Chase Dreams. Yeah. Created by former Saturday Night Live head writers Sarah Schneider and Chris Kelly, the big sibs are played by Helene York and Drew Tarver. Case Walker is Chase and their mom is the deliciously delightful Molly Shannon. This show is here to fulfill all of your showbiz social media parody needs. It's a bit raunchy, but also sweet and terrifically smart and funny. And much like Shit's Creek, Big Bro and Sis learn through adversity and effort who they are and where their true talents lie. You can find the other two, seasons one and two on HBO, and season one is on Prime. Molly Shannon's having a kick-ass time. Right. Because she's doing that show with that other Saturday Night Live person. I can't remember her name who has cancer, but she sells on like a QVC. It's a QVC thing. kind of thing. It's called I Love That For You yeah. or I Love This For You. Something. So she, good for her. because she's Yeah, so she's so fun to watch. All right. I'm going to talk about Hollywood Masters right. on Netflix. I, I, I love shows that get into the process of movie and television making, how directors and writers and actors do whatever it is they do, interviews that make you understand the magic. Well, that's what Hollywood Masters does on Netflix. It's an interview show conducted by Stephen Galloway. Stephen is a host and a producer of Close Up with a Hollywood Reporter, the Hollywood Reporter Roundtables, and this one, Hollywood Masters. The show's done 32 episodes total since 2017. This season has a great cross-section of talent. He talks to Jake Gyllenhaal about being from a film family. His father was a director and his mom a writer. His relationship with his talented sister, Maggie to his being a philosophy major at Columbia, and how he navigates the quirks of directors with different styles. Jake's a thoughtful and introspective actor who isn't afraid to go deep in the interview. I really loved him. Sean Penn's good, too. He's very open in this conversation about the frustration of being tabloid fodder for 30 years, about how he selects projects, and his passion for his hugely successful nonprofit foundation that started with getting medicine for people in Haiti after the devastating earthquake. It's not preachy. Not self-serving. He's just really eye-opening. He's fairly, I mean, surprisingly more honest than you would expect him to be. I won't talk about all the interviews, but I will do one more that's really interesting. Gina Davis, an amazingly charming woman, self-deprecating, honest, and she talks about an area of her life that not everybody knows about. Gina is a world-class archer and actually made it to the Olympic trials. So if you're a film geek, this is going to feed your neurosis. The Hollywood Masters, which incidentally having nothing to do with me liking it, is taped on the campus of Loyola Marymount University, where my daughter happens to be a student. I didn't realize that to the end of the series. But You didn't know where your daughter went? No, I knew where she okay. went, but I didn't. I, that, it, it, yeah, nothing, yeah. It's not a promotion for Loyola Marymount. <laughs> because. All right, on to our guest. This man 
has been one of the most highly regarded stand-ups in the country for years. He's also an actor. He was in Adam Sandler's Funny People. He was a writer on Mad About You with Paul Reiser and on The Roseanne Show. He had an HBO and a Showtime special. Made many appearances on Jay Leno and David Letterman. He's written a book, co-written a book with Rich Scheidner, another really funny guy. And he's got another one coming out called Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> he co-hosts a podcast called You Don't Know Schiff. Jerry Seinfeld said this. Mark Schiff is one of the funniest, the brightest, and the best stage comics I've ever seen. That's all you need right there. No, that's a pretty good endorsement. How are you, Mark Schiff? We're happy to have you, my friend. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Thank you. Good to see you, Louise. And uh, Fritz, is it? <laughs> yes, Fritz. Hey, Mark, you have to explain you your Zoom background because uh, Room Raider would go crazy because you're using Cinderblock to hold up your fleet of albums. Please explain. <laughs> well, you know, the albums are old and the Cinderblock look was, you know, from the 60s and 70s and stuff. So, um, I was telling Louise earlier, There's, uh, I have 600 comedy albums. It's a very rare collection. Oh, my God. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Uh, um, million people you've never heard of. That qualifies as a museum, doesn't it? It really, it really does, and uh, it's it's a great collection. Most of it is terrible. <laughs> you know, mo- most of the comedians that you've never heard of. What's the, the worst one you have in that collection? Um, that that there's some southern guys nobody's ever heard of. There's just you know you know was an awful one. Um, oh my God, what am I forgetting now? Because they're not uh, very good. Buddy Hackett oh. did an album called The Chinese Waiter, and there were no laughs on it. It's just him in a, in a room recording routines, and that's pretty awful. It's pretty you know what I, I'd love for you to do for us, Mark, is just randomly, like, you know, even close your eyes, just pick one, and then, uh, let's see, and then you can explain why you have it. Okay. Okay. He's From picking. Here. He's selecting. Here we go. Ooh, it's so, colorful. So here, here's um, an Alan Sherman, of course. Oh, yes, oh, Alan yeah. Sherman. Hello, mother. My son, the celebrity. Hello, I love. I love that one. Ooh, the car. That album cover that's is great. everything. Oh, Jose Jimenez. Jose Jimenez. See, that's when. See, there's so much you can't do anymore, right? That's right. Jose Jimenez was a character of Bill Dana. It would now be inappropriate. There's the Bickersons. What is Going to the moon. Donna Michi and Francis Langward. This is so funny. It's unbelievable. It's a husband and wife. A double album of them just arguing for two hours. Yeah, the Bickersons, my parents That's used funny. to. funny. I never heard of them. They used to tell me about the Bickersons. They were very funny. Of course, one more. Now hold that up because okay, our hold. producer wants to take Ooh, a picture. Oh, Phyllis. Well, Phyllis Stiller. Yeah, there we go. Phyllis she looks Stiller. very butch in that picture. Yeah, well, well those she... are the days. You know, know that's also not appropriate to say woman. anymore. No, no, no. I, I just, I, I was, I, I was really, it was a comment on my age and not her looks. No, I just really want to get you in Twitter I, trouble. I, I, you know, I did Evening at the Improv, which was the classic brick wall comedy show. And after I did an Evening at the Improv, she wrote me the nicest note. And I just thought that was so cool. She didn't know me from Adam. And just, uh, she, she was very, very supportive of young comics. Yeah. You know, she, I got on her Christmas card list. <gasps> oh my God. How cool. I, I did a, uh, I did a, um, a cartoon called Two Stupid Dogs with Brad Garrett. Uh, he played big dog. I played little dog. And these actors would come in and Phyllis Stiller came in and Carol Channing came in. Wow. And it was such a pleasure working with these people. Wow, so that's... what's the best album you have back there? Let me guess. Uh, Class Clown, George Carlin, or Lenny Bruce's uh, no, live Carnegie at the Paul concert, Sistine right? Chapel. What's Bob that? Newhart. 
I, I got them all. They're all they're all they're, a lot of those are just great. They're just fun to listen to. The Lenny Bruce uh, triple album live from Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, Carlin, of course, the Cosby albums, you know, yeah. you know, he did what he you know did. His albums are amazing. He wrote one. He autographed one to me that said, thanks for the great idea, Mark. Wow. Now, I don't want to feel like I, you know, <laughs> it was my idea that he went off the uh, the rail there. But I hope uh, that wasn't your idea. That was my idea. Do you have any Smothers Brothers? Yeah, of course I do. I don't know where they are here. Yeah, I'll show you something I just came across. Give me yeah. this. Take a second. Don't go away. Don't no, no, no. We'll we can wait for you. Later. We're not going anywhere. So he's um, reaching for another album. My mother's, my mother's been gone for years. And but I remember I did the Carson show, Tonight Show with Carson. And I got him to send this to my mother. Isn't that a beautiful shot of Johnny? It really is. It's gorgeous. And that's it's before a, the airbrush technology. That's just oh, it's unbelievable. Johnny. And he wrote to Gloria, all good wishes, Johnny Carson. And uh, I just came across Wait, that the other day. Hold it up one more time. We're going to take a picture of you with it. Beauty. It's really a beauty. So while we're talking about comedy history, did you see the George Carlin doc, the Judd Apatow doc? I did see it. Did you like it? I liked a lot of it. I, I, I talked to Wayne Fetterman about it. Who yeah, yeah. He was a producer it. on it. I, I liked the, I liked a lot of it. I um I'm sorry they went so deep into his troubled life. It it was a little um there was other areas to explore about his comedy. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think they got there completely. But I did like it. I thought he was I liked it because, and you could tell that it was done by a comedian, he let the long bits play out, didn't edit the long bits up. And the revelation in that, to me, was that Sam Kinison's success was a pivotal moment in George's success. When he saw Sam just go for the back of the house with this material, George said, I can go a lot deeper than I've been going, and even told Sam that. He called him and told him that. I just thought that was a revelation. I'd never heard that before. That's true. I wanted to step it up too after hearing that. Um, you know, the great guys can uh, can can make you do that. Whenever I would see some of these, I used to go see a lot of guys live, like the real classic guys. And every time I saw them, I came away thinking, you know, I can just do better. You know, just- I, I thought Judd's documentary about Gary Shandling, and I, I even emailed him this was the best piece of work he ever did. I said, I know you're Mr. 40-year-old virgin and Mr. Anchorman, but that is the most beautiful piece of work you've ever done. And it was really a product of Gary because, and and, and I told Judd, every beginning comedian should be forced to watch that documentary because Gary treated it like an art form. It was called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanley. It, it was it was beautiful. It was beautifully organized. And even though it was four hours long, I didn't feel like it was too long. I, I just loved it. And what, I, I, did too. I was at the memorial there that they shot a lot of it. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, so in, in that, the, you know, Judd depicts how Gary's haunted by the death of his brother. Do you feel like most comedians are haunted by something from their childhood? You know, it's funny, you know, Seinfeld says no about that in his own life. You know, mm-hmm. his parents basically left him alone, didn't bother him, you know, didn't do much with him. And he was happy. You know, I mean, uh, I was certainly I had a, uh, a tough childhood. But, you know, with with comedy, you learn to turn your uh, scars to stars. You know, you what was to- tough about your childhood? Well, my mother would go off on and off the rails. You know, she had like a bipolar thing. Oh. One day Everything was nice. And then the next day, ah! You know, so you never knew what you were walking into. That's that's a little challenging when you're a kid. Oh, um, yeah. Kids need consistency. So it's scary to not know what, what the mood in the house is going to be like. 
You know what they say why Jewish husbands die before their wives? No. They want to. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is it about the Bronx? You got Carl Reiner, you got Robert Klein, you got Mark Schiff, there are probably others. There's just something about that Petri dish that makes for funny people. The Bronx was a very powerful place to grow up. I, I know it was for me and those guys. You know, George Shapiro, who just passed on. I know. I saw his documentary about the Bronx, which I was love fantastic. that. When they Bronx go back. Bronx boys. He That's would such a go good... back every, uh, you know, every couple of years and meet with the guys. And they, you know what he said, George? He said in the documentary, they would meet, the guys would meet, and they would play basketball. And he never understood what the girls would do when they would meet. Because they never went to the park or the courts and even at 90 he goes i wonder what they did in the afternoons when they got together he never figured that out but yes the bronx was a very powerful place you know there was a great writer uh isaac besheva singer mm-hmm. came from like poland and the bronx was like our poland it was so powerful I, I i can't really explain it but it was another world nothing to do with staten island brooklyn was like that too brooklyn if you came from brooklyn you know you were different it was the street, and and, uh, and 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 your comedy was a defense mechanism against outside forces. You know, Robert Klein, one of a couple of his early HBO specials, talked about how it was just his way to sort of dance around whatever trouble was in the street. There was it the same for you? Oh yeah, I mean, I spent I had no park when I grew up. Everything was in the. I can hit. We used to play stickball in the street. I can hit. You know what fungo is when you mm-hmm. throw the ball up and. I can hit a ball perfectly straight where it, it doesn't go left or right because we had to play between two buildings, <laughs> like a window. So you had to learn how to hit the ball perfectly straight. I mean, it's an incredible talent I have. Maybe uh, you just, maybe it, it, it uh, nurtures creativity because you, you don't have organized activities. The parents aren't taking you to Little League. You don't have a park. You don't have a, a, a baseball field or, so you invent games. And you're yep. creative. We played with checkers in the street. You know, I just wrote something about it recently about um, when I was growing up, there were no safety mechanisms for kids. You know, medicine bottles, it was twist and gobble. We would just open them, <laughs> and, you know, whatever we wanted. No seat belts, right? Growing up right. In, in the car, there was uh, my toy soldiers. You can break them off and just swallow little pieces of it. <laughs> but what we had, we, we had something that kids don't have now. We had freedom. Right. I would say to my mother, I'm going out. she go, where are you going? I go, I'm not sure because I really wasn't sure. And she go, just be home around six. Mm-hmm. And it was cool. Now the kids, they got the, the iPhone and they're being tracked like they just broke off a chain gang. <laughs> yep, they take people want to know where they are and who they're talking to. It's crazy. Yeah. And play dates. And, you know, and it's people, I think there's maybe too much news about what could go wrong. And so parents are overreacting to the dangers that are actually out there. Your kid could be on the couch in your home talking to a child molester on her phone. Like she could be in more danger in your home than if you let her go out and play. Absolutely. Well, you know, the computer is is, is a weird weird thing for that. But we had, uh, had a, my bicycle. When I got my bicycle, that was really, I felt like a free man. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, you had to get that bicycle oh, man yeah. and go up to any street you wanted. and You just felt like you were flying. Yeah, yeah. It was, Let, it, let's talk about you as a child. Let's talk about a, and, and this is really hard for me to get my head wrapped around. Let's talk about Mark Schiff as a six-year-old taking ballet lessons. I did. I took, um, <laughs> my, my, my mother 
would uh, I got this, I took singing and ballet, oh, okay. and I actually liked it a lot. She took me to the Ed Sullivan Building for singing lessons, wow. where Ed Sullivan was coming out of. They had upstairs, like on the seventh, eighth floor. So really, an office building part of it. And uh, she took me for singing lessons and ballet. And then when I got older, um, I started doing stand up when I was eighteen, and then I quit for five years. And I took jazz dancing, acting lessons, writing lessons, all during. I always loved taking dance class, but I never retained any of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like me with Spanish. Three years and I can't communicate with my housekeeper. I think it's why you move so beautifully through the world. I've taken ballroom dancing with uh, me and my friend Bernie. We, we took ballroom dancing because we figured it would help pick up chicks when we were, you know, nothing, nothing. Well, Can't that's because you went together. They thought you were gay. Well, there you go. That's but at the, least, you know, you get to touch a girl in the activity, mm-hmm. right? So well, that's that. how they they suck you in for the lessons. Yeah. Like they, this beautiful <laughs> woman comes out, she's teaching her lessons, and she goes, she tells you what a great dancer you will be one day, and she holds you tight, and you go, sign me up for a thousand lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so you started stand up at eighteen, and a pivotal year, time in your life was when you saw Rodney Dangerfield for the first time. I was twelve years old. Wow! My parents took me to a nightclub. I'm an only child, so my parents took me everywhere, and on Queens Boulevard. In Regal Park, my parents took me to see a singer one night at nightclub, Al Martino. You oh, I that? love Al Martino. Yeah, he made a, he had a, a hit called Red Roses for a Blue, blue mm. Lady. I want red some red roses, roses for a blue lady. <laughs> that was a Wayne Newton hit first, and it was probably covered by absolutely all of the Man, I sound like I'm 114 years old right oh, now. You can I? just play an instrument with your mouth. That's Jeez. a talent. So... Opening the show was a comedian. I'd never seen a comedian before. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rodney Dangerfield. And he came out and he nailed it. He just killed the audience. And I watched my parents laugh like I'd never seen them laugh before. Wow. And people around me were just spitting water out. It was, <laughs> I said, that's it. I had an epiphany. That's it. I know what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. And I never looked back. Did you that say was- that out loud? To I told my parents I want to be a comedian. They and you know they kind of laugh it off because when you're 12, you want to be a fireman, sure. a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. you know, comedian. And uh, yeah, started listening to records. Go down to Lincoln Center in New York uh, and listen to comedy albums. They used to have record players, and I listened to them there. And then that's started- what happened to me with George Carlin. Somebody bought me. T- I never seen stand up. I mean, I mean, I'd seen it on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Tonight Show, but. Somebody bought me tickets to see George Carlin, and he was performing at the Valley Forge Music Fair. Sure. And I didn't understand the nuts and bolts of stand-up, where it's a slow process. You build 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, and eventually you have an hour and 90 minutes. And, and you know, you don't work off notes or any of that because you have it memorized. And I saw this guy on stage convulsing 3,000 people, and I thought it was the greatest amount of power that another human being could have to make people laugh and feel good with no notes. And it seemed his, his wordsmith abilities and his ability to just make it look like it was off the top of his head. Honest to God, he was like a shaman and it changed my life. I didn't want to be a comic. I never thought I could be, but I, I, I told Weezy that was like my St. Paul on the road to Damascus story. It, it was such a change for me in my life having seen that. So. Sure. Sure. He was the king of words. Mm-hmm. He, nobody could twist him around. And, but you and, said you quit stand up for a period of time. I didn't know that. So what, what was that? About? I suffered with stage fright. Oh. So I would get up on when I got up in 18, I bombed so badly. It was just horrific. It was normal, but that's the way it was. So, you know what? So, um, I didn't get up again for five years. I didn't have to. I lost all courage to mm-hmm. do that. So I started taking 
other theatrical things. And then I came back at 23 and I never looked back. So, um, so you, know, you, know, you know how it is. Then you work for free for five years or something like that until you start getting some gigs. Right. So would you hit the open mics around New York? Going to oh, Manhattan? We did four, five, six a night. Me, yeah. Jim Brogan, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry Miller, George Wallace, Paul Reiser, Gilbert Gottfried. What a class. That's that's the class right there. When you rattle off all these guys, you're rattling off the guys who made it. Mm-hmm. Were there a bunch of people that you can't remember their name because they just they couldn't quite make make that that heavy lift with, with you you pros? Yeah, they well they just a lot of people didn't just didn't put the work in. And if you don't put the work in, you say, I, I'm not a natural performer. I wasn't born. Like I was talking to George Wallace about on my podcast. And uh, I said, George, I remember when you when we first started, you were good right away. And he goes, yes, I was. I just came out and I, I you know, he was great. Some of us were not. He, he was the Reverend George Wallace. And, and his whole timing and pattern on stage was very much like an evangelical minister, which, which stayed with him after he blew that off and just became a comedian. And that's what made him really funny. He knew exactly how to perform. But I, was, think, I think most people are not good right away because this is my analogy. It's like, it is like playing a musical instrument, but rather than being able to practice it in your, in your living room and getting pretty good before you go up in front of people, you have to hit... You have to blow your first notes in front of an audience to see whether or not, mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell whether or not your musical instrument is in tune, but in order to know whether or not you're funny, you have to go from zero to, to 100 in front of people. And that's right. just a debilitating process that not everyone is built for. And you had to perfect many different things like yeah. writing, performing. You had to direct yourself. Mm-hmm. You had to learn the physicality to, as well as the writing part of it. Yep. Yeah, right. Each one is a talent in itself. You know, there's a couple like Norm MacDonald, God bless him. And uh, he never moved around. He just stood in front of the microphone. He never mm-hmm. perfected that part of it. I mean, as, as, as a funny guy, very few people would ever be as funny as he was. But so you got to learn all these different things, uh, which a lot of people, uh, you know, it takes a long time to do that. And I was not a natural. Right, but you're but you, sometimes the people that aren't natural performers are, are the best writers, and if you can write, kind of that's everything because you're going to learn how to perform. But it you've got to have great material, right? Well, writing is uh, taking me a long way. You know, people. You know, I you don't realize I, I've made a living as a writer for forty years because I've written my act. Mm-hmm. People don't see that as a form of writing, but you know. It is, and it's a very succinct type of writing. Every word, every nuance, you know, Fritz, it, it counts. Every and, if, or but. Your, but your, your, Mr., your, your friend, Mr. Seinfeld, said that writing stand-up comedy is shaving syllables, which is the best description of it I've ever heard. And your other friend, Larry Miller, said, writing stand-up comedy is like operating a still like a moonshine still he said you put all this energy and all these ingredients into the funnel and if you're lucky in a couple of hours a couple of drops comes out the bottom and you're lucky it, it, and that those those two perfectly describe what it's like it's a hard precise uh very surgical procedure to write stand up it's like uh you know when you're trying to get somebody pregnant you know you get a billion of those little sperm cells going if one makes it through you're lucky <laughs> you made a person 
But, but the opposite of that. So you wrote on Mad About You and you wrote on Roseanne. The writing stand-up is a very solitary endeavor. And I'm a very solitary person, so it fits my personality perfectly. But the opposite of that is writing in a room, part of a staff, and you have to collaborate. Uh, talk about that, you know, going from stand-up to writing on a show. So I, I wrote on Roseanne's talk show, and she, she was very nice. You know, crazy but nice. She could not have been nicer. But she put me in sketches. Um, there I had my own office and I would write by myself, which I love. Mad About You, we sat around 17 writers. Um, there's things I liked about it, but there's things I didn't like about it. I, I, I didn't like, um, and this has nothing to do with the writing. I didn't like the, all the like knocking people stuff that goes on in the writer's room. Like, you know, all the bad relationship stuff and all the stuff that people would carry in with them. That, that bothered me. I'd rather just sit by myself and just think. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah, mean? And, that, that's what I like to do. And get beat up, yeah. Like I have a new book coming out. You know, I didn't sit in a room with a lot of people. I mean, I really enjoy sitting by myself. I'm amazed still after writing for all these years that I've come up with something new. Wow. How is that when you know you've been creating your whole life and then your natural form is a creator? So why would it surprise you when you create? Because it, it just does. You know, I don't know a, a writer that isn't surprised that they just came no, out with something. when you come up with something. People ask it where does it come mystical. from, so I don't know. My spleen. I have no idea. But it's gratifying, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I often wondered, you wrote on two shows where the, 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 the preliminary person was funny. So you had Paul Reiser, who was hysterical stand-up, and you had Roseanne, who was funny. Is that make it more filled with pressure that is the bar higher because you have higher standards from a guy who really knows funny instead of trying to create funny lines for a sitcom actor who doesn't know funny from his shoe no the the, the great thing about having those two or anybody of that talent that type of talent is you know that they can deliver mm-hmm. one of the greatest moments in my life was when uh mel brooks was on the uh on mad about you mm-hmm. and if you've ever been on the floor of a, a sitcom on uh, whatever night they're shooting it, sometimes a joke falls flat and they'll yell the executive producer, anybody got anything here? We need a joke. Mm-hmm. So I came up with something immediately it's a, for Mel Brooks. And the punchline, I can't give you the whole setup because I don't remember, but the punchline was nobody's ever seen a live whitefish. That was the punchline. <laughs> that was unbelievable. And he delivered it so well, and people looked at me like I was some freaking genius out of... Uh, but how cool is that, though? It was, showed his talent and your talent in the spur of the moment. All within about 10 seconds. I got it. I got a joke for him. And there he goes, and he spits it out perfectly, and that's that's working with a pro. Gordon Hunt was a friend of mine, God rest his soul, who directed sure. many episodes of Mad About You, and he was, he was a master at recognizing funny and timing and all those things. Paul Reiser is one of the greatest TV talents. I mean, he's working more than ever now still. And, he's back uh, on the road as a comic, right? He's doing shows. Back on the road as a comic. And right now he's in Ireland filming a movie, I believe, that he wrote and maybe even in starring in. He's in Ireland doing that. His character on the Comiskey Method kills me. It's so funny. Because he took over for Adam Arkin, or Al, uh, it's Alan or Adam, who's the dad? Alan. Alan. Yeah, and he retired because of COVID in his age. And so they, they created this new character for Paul that's hysterical, and he's so funny. He's a great actor, and he makes that character so funny. They put him in a fat suit, too. Yeah, I know. He looks huge in that thing. With the little ponytail. Yeah. I think it said he took him two hours every day to just dress him up. Mm-hmm. 
the thing there. He was hysterical on that, absolutely hysterical. It was a good show. Michael Douglas. Yeah. I love that show. So funny. I had, I, I don't want to get too medical about this, Wheezy, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but since we're on the topic of being old and medical procedures, I was having a medical procedure that was located in the lower third of my body. And about two days before I went in for the procedure, I was watching the Comiskey Method, and they did a whole episode about this procedure. And Danny DeVito was the urologist. He was playing Tetris. It was, <laughs> it was hysterical, and it took all the tension out of my surgical procedure. Oh, my God, anyway, that's brilliant. Good show. I remember Michael Douglas in one of the early episodes. He goes to the bathroom. He wakes up at night to go pee, and you just hear like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was probably the same episode. Yep. A little drops coming out one at a time there. Mm -hmm. I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to get a jacket that on the back. It says, uh, um, I have a swollen prostate. And when I'm standing at a urinal in the men's room, nobody will stand behind me. <laughs> they see that. I could say, no, I'm going to be like there. the person writing a check in a grocery store. I, I, I got you. Now, you wrote a book uh, with Rich Scheidner called I Killed. Oh, I and it, it's it's great anecdotes. But I don't, have you read the Amazon reviews, Mark? Yeah, pretty good, right? Yeah, but I have one that I'd like to share. I don't know if you've read this one. It's entitled Solid Entertainment? Question mark. And this is the review. This is the perfect book to taint in your reading collection. If ever there were a book you'd like to taint, this one is it. Read it while taking care of personal business, sitting down number two at home. You will learn something personal about the comedians. Each story from the road lasts just about as long as the average sitting down personal time anyway. This would also be the perfect book to read while deploying to the Middle East. There is a lot of downtime while waiting on flights or waiting on the next movement anywhere. I strongly recommend somebody in your military unit purchase this book, read about comedy behind the lines, read comedian war stories, tuck this book somewhere in your rucksack or between your legs, pull it out for your next portable toilet absentee ballot voting experience in a faraway combat zone. You'll wish your business was as solid as this book. It is wow. solid reading while you dream of a solid stool in a foreign land. <laughs> Perfect bathroom or combat zone reading material. If it came with a sealed plastic bag, I'd recommend reading this book <laughs> while taking a long hot bath too. That's wow. fantastic. Absolutely true. This is this book is the perfect bathroom book. <laughs> but for those of us in the business, it, it's it's like you have PTSD remembering bad road times. I hated the road when I was as little as I did it certainly didn't do it as much as you did but it's so interesting and you know some comics are great writers Barry Martyr who writes for Jerry Seinfeld I think wrote the funniest one in the book I laughed out loud for 10 minutes reading that piece it was hysterical he's incredible he's writing on Jerry's new movie now yeah I heard about that so did you ask people to submit or how does it work so the book took three the book took three years to to, to finish okay it took a long time we would call up comedians. We knew practically everybody. And we would call people and say, listen, we're doing this book. And do you have a road story? And they generally would say yes. And they would. we would either tape them over the phone and then we would edit it and fix it up. Or they would, very rarely would they write it themselves. Yeah. It was mostly through tape and stuff like that. And and the, the more famous the person, um, the harder it was to get a story because we had to go through agents and managers. Mm -hmm. You know, Chris Rock gave us a wonderful story and he was he was he was beautiful with the whole thing. But I had to talk to his lawyer. His lawyer doesn't let him do anything. It must have cost Rock twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, because he takes a shot at a couple of people in there. He's probably protecting his client. Right. 
Yes. Yeah, it's, it was a great story. It was a story that uh, helped sell the book in many ways. But uh, it's a young comedians book. read this book and they this is like a Bible to them about yeah. about the road. Do you feel like comedians, maybe like soldiers, are have closer bonds with their buddies because they've all been through this combat and they've bared their souls on, alone on a stage and then they travel together and it's easier to talk about stuff that matters because most guys that just play basketball together, they're kind of broy, but I think comedians just get emotionally tighter. Do you find that to be the case? Yes, I, I do. I, you know, when I, I came out of New York and we had a very friendly environment in New York. Yeah. A lot of people helping each other with material jokes, giving each other ideas going in, watching the other guy perform and supporting them. When I came out to California and I started doing the comedy stores, it, it was less supportive. Um, it was more drugs and more alcohol. We didn't have a lot of that in New York. So um, the answer is yes, we got very close in New York and um, we still remain close today. A lot of us. You were a great class. Plus New York was a, uh, was a comedy furnace. What I mean is New York audiences can be very tough, particularly late at night. You had to have it together. You know, I, I mean, right? You had to learn how to box in New yeah. York and edit and be fast and think quickly and handle hecklers. And I, I always, I, I remember, uh, uh, oh, his name will come to me in a second, but he, he was an MC at the comedy store. And he was so good and so fast. And somebody said, that's his New York talking there because he was so good at dealing with, you know, errant audience members. And uh, Richard Belzer, you know. Belzer, uh, Belzer was the Catch a Rising Star. Yeah, he was the host of Catch a Rising Star. And he could slap people to one, three or th two or three times a night. So Bob Costa used to have an interview show. It wasn't a sports show. He had an interview show um, on NBC. Mm -hmm. And one night he had Richard Belzer on. And he's talking to Belzer. And he says to Belzer, so um, who are some of the worst comedians you've ever you ever saw in your life? <laughs> and Belzer goes, ah, you know, I don't want to start naming names. It's not right. And Costas goes, ah, give us somebody. So Belzer goes, Mark Schiff and Steve Metalman were the two worst comedians I ever saw in my life. When they first started, these guys were so awful. But over the years, they just got better and better. And they're such funny guys now. Oh, and okay. yeah, he he was right. We. It, the, the amount of courage it took for me to keep going up with what I had in the beginning, it, it was was monumental. That's why part of the title of your new book is Chutzpah. Chutzpah. By the way, thank you very much for saying that correctly. Yeah, he um, did. He spat all over the microphone. That was an exaggerated Presbyterian pronunciation of Chutzpah. I spoke to a non-Jew the other day. He said, uh, Chupsis? <laughs> <laughs> He had no concept of how, and I said, "No, you got to pull up phlegm from your toes." Annika, chutzpah, I am. All right, to fill a DNA tube. All right, so you did. I killed. Now let's talk about road stories that you have with a twist, opening for Mr. Seinfeld. So probably my favorite one is, um, you know, Jerry likes cars, loves cars. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> collection of Porsches, Mercedes, sort of. So I'm in, I'm in, uh, in, in Indianapolis with Jerry and we always go for a walk in the afternoon. 
And we, we see a sign that says uh, muscle cars, like just out in the street. And Jerry goes, let's take a look. We go in there. And this guy has the greatest collection of muscle cars on display you've ever seen. GTOs, GTOs and Chevy Chevelles and all that stuff. Yeah, and must and, and 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 they look like they just came off the uh the conveyor, you know? So Jerry's talking to the owner and I'm walking around looking, and Jerry comes over to me and goes, uh, anyone you want, go ahead, pick one. Stop. So I said, Really? He goes, Yeah, anyone you want. And then he leaves and goes back and talks to the guy, and I'm looking around and I landed on this uh I think it was like a 64 something GTO with four on the floor and oh God, I it was wrapped around me like, like, like a, a silk coat. And I got out and I looked at it and I stepped back and I, that's the car. So I go over to Jerry, he goes, what'd you decide? And I said, uh, I want to thank you, but I can't take it. And he said, okay, let's go get, let's go to lunch. He didn't even ask me why. <laughs> Would he have bought the car or was he just... Absolutely, no, he would have in a second. And we got outside and I'm thinking, it's too late for me to tell him I changed my mind. I can't do it. (laughs) So I get back to my hotel room and I call a friend of mine who's kind of a mentor and I I told him what happened. He says, are you out of your mind? When somebody offers you a gift, you take it because it makes them happy Mm -hmm. that give it to you. You're bringing them happiness. It's not just for you, it's for them too. So he goes, next time Jerry offers you a car, take it. Take the car and get him a brownie. So I said to him, what are you, crazy? Who offers a car twice? Once is like hitting the lottery, but twice? This is insane. Jerry picks me up. We're going to a gig. He picks me up in this beautiful 1982 300D Mercedes diesel. Beautiful showroom condition. We're driving to uh, the plane. And he says, you know, I'm thinking of selling it. You want to buy it? So I said, no, I I can't afford this. I I don't have the extra money. He goes, "Ah, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you. You want it? So I, I now I hear my friend's voice, take the car. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll take it. And he goes, good. And he goes, uh, one problem. The radio isn't working well. Do you want me to fix it and give it to you? Or you want <laughs> to take it like this? So I said, fix the radio. <laughs> and two weeks later, I got this car and just and that was about eight years ago. And about three weeks ago, Jerry is in town. I drove the car and went to pick him up. And we went to dinner. And he was so happy to see that I was still enjoying the car. What a cool see, thing. See, you yeah. made him happy. So you were open for him off and on for like 20 years. I'm still opening for him. We go back out in September. What I, what I always respected about Seinfeld was that he wasn't afraid to use a really skillful comic in front of him. Somebody that could bring it almost as much as he could. Not all comics will do that. They want somebody who's a lower mid-level, but he wants somebody else wants to look good. He was always, you know, Tom Papa, you, guys who have opened for him that were, you know, headliners on their own. I always thought that was cool. Because he wants to hang out with someone he respects. No, that's and that becomes your road buddy. It's about the hang, yeah. Yeah. He wants me to make the show great. Mm-hmm. He doesn't uh, want me to just piddle around out there. How much and time do you do in front of him? 15, 20. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one other quick story with him. You got a minute? Mm-hmm. You, you, you no, going we in have no time left. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Got so one night, uh, one afternoon, I go out to lunch with Jerry. We're in we're, uh, Toledo or so. I can't remember exactly who we are. And uh, we pass this little deli and he looks in the, the case there and he goes to a guy, I have a tuna sandwich. I said, Jerry, that tuna doesn't look good. <laughs> He goes, nah, I don't have it. And he eats it. So we always go to his room, me and the producer of the show. We go and meet him in his room, and then we go to the show. We get to his room. He's sitting at the little table, like sweating. Like, Jerry, okay? He goes, ah, I'm so sick. Ah, oh, so sick. 
So the guy says, you want to cancel the show? He goes, ah, I got to do the show. So he's soaking wet, sweating. Mm. We help him up, change his shirt, and we're like walking him to the elevator. He's almost collapsing. Oh, God. And we go, you want to go to the hospital? No, I got to do the show. Wow. So this is one of the most frightening things. They say to me, all right, Mark, this is what he want. It's 3,000 people. They go, you go out there and just stay out there until Jerry's ready. <laughs> oh, God. 3,000 people. That open-ended thing is always dangerous. The 3,000 people. We're not talking about 65 people in yeah. a club. Go out there. He goes, just stay out there. We'll so I said, what do you mean? It could be. He goes, I don't know. It might be 20 minutes. might be 40. might be an hour. Just, just go out there. <laughs> Bring a book. Yeah, so I I, saw, I walk out there and and I, I was out there 40 minutes and it was a great show because I got the stuff, but it was so frightening not knowing maybe I'll be out of here an hour and 10. So you got it on the spot. You're trying to figure out what am I going to do in case I got another 17 minutes left. Wow. Yeah, so that was what happened. Great, did he did he throw up? He or? came out. Great question. He came out and he did one of the best shows I've ever seen him do. Awesome. He got his act together. Got got feeling good and went out there and just gave it everything. And he was tremendous that night. Three new bad tuna jokes. Oh, really a disciplined performer and a disciplined writer. Right. He, I mean, he he's like a, he, he he's even said this. He treats it like he's a businessman. He sits down at a precise moment. He has a bowl of cereal for breakfast. That's it. And then he sits down and he writes for a, a block of time every single day, road or otherwise. Right. Yeah. And he writes on a yellow legal pad. Did you, did you, I don't know if you saw his special. Oh, yeah. I did. He puts out this whole block they took off and he lays down on the street the yellow pages. Mm -hmm. So he's still, we're backstage every, every time we're backstage, he has a yellow pad out and he's going over his notes or making new notes or asking what do you think it is. Or, and then afterwards, we go over some new routines and uh, I try to give him stuff and uh, every once in a while it gets in there. He's got a good one, you know. What's his style with folks who approach him in public? If they're nice, he doesn't like when they, and who does when they, you know, walk over and just start touching him. Yeah. You know, nobody likes that. No. Um, he's always great to kids. And um, if they're willing to wait, he won't give pictures really, but if he's willing to wait, uh, he'll sign autographs. Like if we were having dinner or something like that, he'll go, just give me a couple of minutes. And he's always incredibly nice to people. So talk about the typical gig. He flies a private plane. So, okay, we're going to Toledo to the uh, Elks Club. Yeah. Meet me at the Van Nuys Airport. It's right. you and Jerry and an attractive yes. stewardess and a pilot. That's it, right? No stewardess. No, no. Okay. Uh, we, they stock the plane, the plane with food. Does he own a plane or does he lease a plane? Oh, he rents from uh, uh, NetChecks, I, I okay. believe. So I'll tell you a great story about that. We get on the plane and um, he always, his, his uh, assistant knows what he wants stored on the plane, what kind of food. So we get on the plane and we're about to take off and he's looking for his thing to eat and it's not there. So he calls his assistant and says, listen, I, 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 you know, I ordered this thing. It's not here. And uh, I don't know what happened. She goes, oh boy, I ordered it. I don't know what happened. We, two hours later, we land somewhere. And when we land, get off the plane, there's somebody waiting with what he ordered originally. Wow. They go, here, here's your locks and bagels. Yeah. Wow. That is a moment. That's a great it moment. Really is that, you know you've made it at that point. Yeah, that I'll tell you a funny story. One night we uh, were in Minneapolis. It's midnight. I'm there with him, Kevin Docterman, 
and the runway it's midnight it's freezing minneapolis winter it's snowing the runway is filled with snow and we're about ready to take off and the pilot starts taking off and then right before we take off he aborts the flight and we're skidding all over the runway and spinning around and we're sitting there and it was it was a moment and the pilot comes back and this is what he says he goes sorry about what happened the dashboard lit up red and it said I had engine problems. He goes, but I don't think they're really engine problems. Oh I think that the light was a miss, uh, you know, fire. And I think we're probably okay, but I'm going to leave it to you guys. If you want to go. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. This is like a buddy. Holly. Sweat is pouring off of me with this question. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jerry goes, uh, yeah, let's go. Uh, and then Kevin goes, puts the thumb up. He goes, go for it. Then they look at me and I go, yeah, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, if I were so Jerry, very nicely, he goes, listen, this is the deal. If you want to get off, you can get off. And then in the morning, just take a commercial flight. Just meet me. No problem. You will pay for everything if, you, if you're worried about it. So I said, uh, all right, I'll go. Now I'm really nervous. I'm sweating. And you know, when you're nervous, you start talking a little. Mm-hmm. I say to Jerry, um, how long is this flight? He goes, no more than two minutes, which made me laugh my head off because <laughs> what he said is we're going down immediately. So don't even <laughs> talk about- took go ahead. It was a little rough when we took off. Uh, the, the thing was bouncing. I go, oh God! This is <laughs> anyway. We were fine, of course, and uh, but that was a moment, wasn't uh, it? You know? Yeah. So well, let's talk about nervous moments in airplanes and everything. You performed. You you were in Alaska doing a gig on nine eleven. I was. I was doing a ship, <laughs> a, a cruise ship. I was with my friend Dave Martell, and I'm asleep on nine eleven, and the phone in my little cabin rings, and Dave says, "You've been watching TV." I said, no, I've been asleep. He goes, turn it on. And I see that the uh, World Trade Centers were taken down. And I, I, mean, I don't know what I'm watching, really, you know, because we don't know no. what's, what's going on. I have no idea. So anyway, um, everything unfolds. We're finding out a little bit what's going on. But I'm in Alaska. My family's in California. I actually got through to my wife on the phone. And she said, she's okay. And you don't know if it's going to happen there or whatever. So the cruise director, I'm supposed to perform the next day, 9-12. And by the way, the captain, you ever been on one of these ships that they're, 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 they have this Norwegian German little accent? Oh, yeah. Harkens back to the late 30s. It's a complete. Yeah. And I don't do accents, but he goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I have some very bad news. America is at war. Oh, that's my what he says. God. He announces to 1700 people America's at war. Oh, my God. And we're in Alaska and, you know. Meanwhile, it's beautiful there. It's the most peaceful place you can ever imagine. Mm-hmm. So I go to the cruise director. I said, you know, the next day I saw him because he was very busy on 9-11. Next day I see him and I go, uh, we've got a show tonight. Uh, what do you want to do? He goes, well, we'll do it. Really? I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. People, uh, you know, they're here. And I did the show. Let me tell you something. They were pretty good. Um did you address it in the show? I, I addressed it at the end of the show. And I said, uh, we all know what happened. And it's good to laugh, but we got to keep in mind because we don't know what's going on there. And uh, 
you know, let's pray for the guys and, and for the, the country. And uh, everybody did. We took a moment there, but it was at the end of the act they did it. And they were they were much better than I thought they would be, considering what was going on. It was a release and a diversion. Yeah. Wow. So that was... Um, but we've all had things happen. I, I don't know if you ever had... I had a guy uh, drop dead at my show. Oh, no. Yeah, he just fell off a chair. And... Uh, and and then it took 40 minutes to take him out, and then we just continued on with the show. I mean, I've had people, uh, you know, pass out and fall over. At these prices? It's the type of comedy I do. Once they hear me, they just drop dead. It's well, just, what's your writing process like? We talked about Seinfeld. Are you a disciplined writer? Do you write every day? I am now, yeah. Um, it took me years. When I first started, I was very disciplined. Every night I would get home from the club, and I, I had a tape recorder, a little cassette deck, and I'd listen to it and, and rewrite the bit night after night after night after night. And the tape recorder is your greatest friend mm -hmm. as a stand-up comedian because it's the only thing that doesn't lie to you. Mm -hmm. Friends lie, your family, oh, your friends, that's a great feel, so fun. No, listen to the tape recorder. That'll tell you how funny you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, the audience and the tape recorder, those are the two things. Um but I started writing some years back. I started writing plays in my stand-up, and I became pretty disciplined. I, I just love sitting in a room by myself doing it. Mm -hmm. Now I write practically every day. Wow. I, that's how I wrote my my new book. And uh, I, I well, what, 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 not that we're going to talk about your book, and I, uh, and I want to talk about your podcast too, but what what in your stand-up attracts you? What, what What is a subject matter which is, great for the mark shift take for a stand-up act you know you're not you don't do politics generally and a lot of current events material but w what attracts you and i i work clean i don't curse no i know so we're clean and I, I i i do no politics um i love talking about family wife kids mm -hmm. parents relationships i just i love it because i'm always trying to figure out what's going on you know, mm -hmm. with, the, with the wife and the thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the other, you know, the way to keep a marriage going, by the way, is uh, restraint the pen and tongue. Don't ever write anything nasty and give it to them and don't say what you're thinking. Like the other day, I was looking at my wife, I think, and I got to throw her out the window. I just, I just got to, I got to toss. So, you know what I do? I keep the window closed. So <laughs> I don't, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's all about that stuff. And then, uh, you know, we come up with our observations of, uh, I was thinking the other day, I thought of one yesterday, I said, you know, people with China, you know, these people aren't going to change. They haven't even tried to use a fork in 2000 years. <laughs> so when you're trying to make these people change, forget about it. Yeah, they're pretty set in their ways. Um, with so, Mark, uh, do comedians make good parents? I think it's it's an individual thing, That's you know. Um, yeah, it's uh, I. I worked on that. Mm -hmm. I, I, really, I actually read books and took classes and studied that stuff. I made a decision early on. You know, my wife used to breastfeed. And uh, at night, I would get up and have to go and get the baby and hand it to her. And rather than complain that I was being woken up in the middle of the night, I thought, this is a little private moment I'll have with the kid. Mm -hmm. and I'll never get back again. So I, I, I kept that type of thinking. And you can, and you write about that in your blog on your website. You write about, you know, if someone asks you to do, go do something, even if you don't talk, go. 
because it just enjoy being with the people you love. Yeah, that's 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 a big thing because we're not here forever. And uh, yeah, you have three sons. You've been married. And I asked them a question, by the way, more than twice, probably mm-hmm. three times in our lives. When they got older, I said, "Listen, lay it on me. How was your childhood?" Oh, let me have it right now. Where did I go wrong? Where oh, did I wow. go? What do you want? Brave. You know, or you gave them a gift to allow themselves to be honest with you. Yeah, and for the most part, it came across pretty good. You know, really good. I had one son that complained about me forcing him to go to a school he didn't want to go to. Uh, uh, but uh, other than that, uh, they didn't have many uh, many complaints, which is a, a nice thing. Are you funny to them? Or yeah. do they think you're funny? I have one son that, they always complain. My, my other, Two of my sons complain that I, I favor the third, this other one. Because you know why? He laughs at everything I say. We love this son. Yeah, he's my favorite too. Yeah, heavily weighted. Will. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so the other ones go. They'll look at him and go, "What are you laughing so much? You're like an idiot at everything he says." You know, it's a great. So I went to a shrink once, and uh, I said, "You know, the whole family thinks I favor this one guy." He goes, "If they all think so, then you probably do." Wow, <laughs> it's like it's like teacher's pet. Yeah, or and something. by the way, I don't love one more than the other, but sometimes. Everyone has a different quality that you uh, are kind of pulled to. They also have different ways of reacting to their dad being funny because this one kid had laughs. He's got nothing at stake. He can just laugh because that's his personality. The other ones might be thinking, am I ever going to be this funny? How do I measure up to this guy? Like, you know, everyone has stuff going on and it informs whether or not they laugh out loud. They know it's funny. We just had a water fight uh, two days ago. What's today? Tuesday? Sunday, they brought the little one over, the uh, two-year-old grandchild. Mm-hmm. And me and my older son were squirting a hose at each other, getting each other soaking wet. It was, it was fantastic. Oh, my God. The child probably went bananas. Let me tell you what they did to me. Oh, the kid went berserk. Uh, maybe about 10 years ago, uh, it's my birthday. You know, the whole all the kids come over and my wife is there. And they give me a little present. And then they give me an envelope. And then it is three lottery tickets, mm-hmm. you know, scratch-offs. They go, here, good luck. And I scratch off one, two, and everything. And then I scratch off the third one. And you got to match three. Mm-hmm. I got 10,000, 10,000. I need one more. I still got four openings. Last one, 10,000. Three, 10,000. No! What? I look, I go, this is unbelievable. And my wife and I were thinking about buying a car that weekend. I go, honey, we just want $10,000. That's unbelievable. And I'm out of my mind. <laughs> All of a sudden, the kids start laughing. I go, what's so funny? They gave me a phony lottery ticket. Oh, oh my that's God. wrong. That's just yeah. wrong. From, from eBay, you can buy these tickets that are duplicates of the exact lottery tickets. That scratch is jacked off. That up. is wrong. Oh. Freaking kids. I took them right out of the will the next day. <laughs> wow. What, what do you, you know, we're in a really volatile time, a toxic time. Even Jerry said on a talk show that we're so politically correct and we're so steeped in this cancel culture. He doesn't even like to do college campuses anymore because everybody's oversensitive. Where do you feel we are? What do you feel the role of a comic is right now? There are two sides. You can be the guy that speaks truth to power. You got to be Dave Chappelle. Or you can be a guy, and I find, I find myself more in this category, who just wants to take people out of their heads for an hour and make them feel good and you know, deflect their attention from the cares of their lives. 
Right. I, I, I'm more in your court, and I think uh, so is Jerry. And, uh, you know, Chappelle is, is, an, is an oddity in that sense. Mm-hmm. And like Marlin and those guys, they're, they're willing to uh, go deep into the, uh, you know, the waters. It's never been my thing. My thing has been an entertainer, what I, but I don't like what's going on. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't like people telling me what I can and can't say. Mm-hmm. Like when I was uh, five years old, and I don't like it uh, now. And they have no right to say it. If they don't like it, leave. Ask for your money back. Channel, but leave me alone. Do you yeah. guys, uh, guys, in your in your uh, class of comedians, do you guys discuss how you're going to present yourselves on social media? Because that was is that that's not native to you guys, and so that was something that came along that you had to kind of figure out. Is that something you discuss? No, no. We, we all have our own thing, and uh, you know. We're all aware of what's going on, so we know if we're going to go into, you know, I mean, I remember Jerry posted one thing once or put up a picture and people didn't like it and they were all over him. So there's always, people have nothing to do, but spend time trying to ruin other people's lives. Mm -hmm. People exist. They're just mean. They go, I'll get this guy. You don't even know who they are. So, uh, you know, let them be. Listen, I do a lot of wife stuff. I can be called a, uh, what's the word, misogynist. Mm You know, because I uh, I talk about my wife and, uh, you know, certain way that is a bit old fashioned. So far, it hasn't happened, but uh, it might. You do you know? run it by her before you do the joke? Never. No. My wife's a uh, very nice Jewish wife. She only cares that I make money and uh, <laughs> her alone. As Don Rickles used to say, they go, how's your wife? I don't know. She drowned. She put all her jewelry on, drowned in the pool. You know, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's lying at the bottom of the pool with all her jewelry on. So uh, my wife's the greatest. No, she doesn't care. People come over there after the show and they'll say, does it bother you? talks like that about you? I don't say anything nasty about her, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a beleaguered husband. But I think people, you know, you must hear from people who can relate, yeah, men, relate men and it. women. In a second, mm-hmm. every guy that sees it goes, how do you know my wife? Uh-huh. You know, you remember who... Um, um, Sam Kinison used to date that uh, woman from China. Uh, you remember her? He always dated women in duplicates where they would be twins. They would be pole dancing twins. <laughs> they would be escort twins. He always had two women that looked almost identical. I remember that. There was one they were beautiful. Ch- but There was one lady from China and she hardly spoke English. And one night at the comedy store, she comes up. Now, she had just moved to America from China. Her parents owned and worked in a rice field. They'd never been out of there. That's what they did. She came over to me and she said, after watching my act, she goes, how do you know my mother? Wow. wow. So universal. That's universal. Yeah. Her mother in a rice field is the same my little Jewish mother in the Bronx. But I'm just curious about how she hooked up with Sam Kennison. That seems like a cultural divide that wouldn't be crossed. Sam Last Kennison, time I saw Sam, girl. it was at the... Uh, the comedy store in, in, in at the Dunes. Remember they had yeah, the comedy yeah, yeah, of course. So I went backstage to see Dan, Sam and say hello, and he was already out of his mind. And by the way, when I first started, he was the nicest guy to me. Oh, yeah. So sweet. So he was nice. a, actually a very sweet man. And he's another guy, and I want you to finish the story, who learned because he was an evangelical preacher, and he learned all of his stagecraft by learning how to whip an audience into a frenzy, and that was 50% of his act. Yeah, he went into it being a great performer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had been doing that for years. 
So I'm backstage and Sam had already lost his mind with the drugs and the drinking. We had tried to help him get sober, but uh, it took for a little while, but it didn't really last. Uh, although he was sober when he was killed. You know, he was killed by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. which is strange. Um, so he's backstage and he, you remember Angel Salazar? Absolutely. So Sam pulls out a gun and says, I'm going to kill Angel tonight. Holy cow. Yeah, and he's got this gun backstage and, you know, he was upset at Angel because Angel had gone out with some woman that Sam would, and that was the type of insanity that was mm-hmm. circling around his head at that point. Mm-hmm. That's what the you know drugs and alcohol and paranoia will do mm-hmm. to you. Absolutely, yeah, you no he was filter. a very sweet man. I used to do a TV show called It's Fritz. You might have been on that show. Sure, yes, yes. Yeah, you were. It was on after Saturday Night Live, and he was a guest on there, and it was a big deal to get Sam. And he showed up again with the uh, the Pole Twins and. Uh, and he he hadn't been to sleep or to bed in like four days. And he always wore that tweed overcoat and he yeah. smelled awful. Yeah. And it just made me so sad. And his face was drawn. I said, how can his heart stand this? But he was just a lovely guy. He, I, I think he, he had a great soul that became clattered, as you say, by all of his abuse. I'm still in touch with his brother, Bill, who managed him. And uh, and Bill's wife, they used to own a theater in Upland, which was a great place to perform. But Bill moved back to Texas. He lives. Wrote a book about Sam. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. You now Sam got booze in the middle of the night, you know, and everything was closed at like two a.m. in mm-hmm. L.A. Uh, if he wanted more booze, he would rent the limousine and it would come stocked. Oh my gosh! That's so funny. That's he really interesting. He is always thinking. Yeah, and you know, before he became famous, he was the manager of the Westwood Comedy Store. And nobody got Sam. You know, this is before they said, oh, this is a, this is an act. He just scared the crap out of people. And so at the end of the night, when it was time to close up, it was last call. Sam would go up and do his act and clear the place out in like 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They'd are, be out on the street. There are acts like that where no one gets them. They clear a room and then all of a sudden. Boom. And usually they're comedians comedian because yeah, the yeah. comedians have seen them enough to get it. Yeah. And the comedians are standing in the back and it's like this kind of donut situation where the comedian's hilarious to the comedians and then the crowd is annoyed that the comedians are laughing and they, they walk out but like once the crowd catches on to what you know what it is it it can be the biggest thing ever because it's so innovative yeah and that's what was clearing the room in the first place Sammy, go ahead. you know at the comedy store when i first got out there in 84 sam was going on at uh, you know one o'clock in the morning to 12 people mm-hmm. every night you know um and then one day he just clicked. Yeah. I'm fascinated not only by your class of comics, which are the pristine class. They're like the... Gentleman comics. The student council of comics. Yeah. In the, uh, but also the, the, the comedy environment back there. You had Catch. You had Caroline's. You had... What else was there? Where, improv. Where, where, the improv, yeah. Co- uh, comic strip. Mm-hmm. Co- Caroline's came a little later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but we had the, the, the improv Catch a Rising Star in the comic strip. And then we had uh, clubs downtown. We had a place called the Triple Inn. One night I was brand new. I had been doing about two years. I'll tell you two quickies. I get off stage. Kenny, this guy Kenny owned this place called the Triple Inn on 54th Street. It was right across, literally right across the street from Studio 54. Wow. And um, I get off stage and I'm kind of new and I didn't do very well. And the guy says, uh, the owner goes, hey, Mark, let me just say something. Your material is shit, and you have no personality. <laughs> Other than that, you have and a that, uh, I'll see you tomorrow. So, 
One night, Gilbert, God bless him, he's rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Gilbert used to do this routine about people that died in his arms. He would go, you know, I was there with Kennedy and I remember holding him. And the thing, he would do this whole thing that he was, you know, like, uh, you know, there. So one night we're at the Triple Inn and Gilbert's on stage and he talks about there's an actor named Sal Minio. Do you remember oh, yeah. Sal? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Sal was murdered. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert goes Rebel into without the, a cause. He was a very talented actor. Yeah. Very talented with James Dean and all those guys. He was just great. Mm-hmm. So Gilbert goes into the whole thing about Salminio dying in his arms and Sal's last words and what they were. And all of a sudden, this woman is sitting here and starts screaming and yelling. And it's Salminio's sister. Oh, my wow. God. Oh, my God. And Sal had just been murdered like three weeks earlier. And this was like a first night out ever. And they had to restrain this woman and get Gilbert out of there so fast. It was, wow. it was horrific. And she just kept screaming, this is my brother's murdered. <laughs> I'm not, I don't mean to laugh over No, I get it. He was a brave soul, man. He was a brave soul. I remember him after 9-11 doing the roast on Comedy Central, and he and he, he did the joke about a 9-11 joke, and it bombed horribly, so he went right into the Aristocats. And did the, right. I'll oh. tell you an interesting thing with him. Uh, Gilbert and I, when we first started, we could not get on stage, but you show up at the club anyway to sh- pay your allegiance, put your time in. Mm-hmm. We would go to the improv on 44th Street and 9th Avenue in Manhattan. 1030. We know we, we haven't gotten on yet. We know we're not getting on that night. Larry David just walks in and this guy walks in and Bobby Kelton walks in and boom, all these guys that are way ahead of us. So we walk. We do this like five nights a week. We'd walk from 44th and 9th to 77th and 1st mm-hmm. to catch a rising stars about three miles. Mm-hmm. Take about an hour to walk up there. We wouldn't get on there either, but we would show our allegiance. One night we're at about one o'clock in the morning, Central Park East Fifth Avenue. We see coming towards us two guys. And I look and I go, hey, Gilbert, there's Woody Allen. It's one o'clock in the morning. Woody is walking in the street with another guy. It turned out to be Marshall Brickman. Oh, yeah, his co-writer. Yeah. We get real close to them. I go, hey, Woody. And it's one o'clock in the morning, Central Park. We could be two friggin' muggers. And Woody's nervous. He's, yeah. And he starts backing up. Yeah. And I, I just said this. I said, Woody, we're comedians. We just left the improv. We're on our way to catch a rising star. And that calmed Woody down. <laughs> we were legitimate. So I said to him, and Gilbert's there. I said, listen, we'd love to talk to you sometime. Can you make a little time, spend a little time talking about comedy? And he goes, come to Michael's Pub next Monday. That's where he played clarinet right, every right, right. Nine years. Come to Michael's Pub. I'll, spend, I'll, I'll talk with you. We go there that next Monday. We go over to him. He goes, listen, I'm a little busy. Please come back in two weeks. I'm sorry. We come back in two weeks. We get a table. He sits down with us. Oh, my God. And he goes, this is how he opens. He goes, if you want to tell me how good I am, how funny I am, how much you like me, let's stop the conversation right now. If you want to talk comedy, let's do it. And we have a 40-minute conversation on on the art of stand-up comedy. Oh, wow. And... Jack Rollins was his manager. Rollins Joffe. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, when I told Jack, who I knew, that Woody talked to us in the street and then met with us, he couldn't believe it. He said Woody never did that for anybody. Some reason he liked you guys. Or you, he was he, thankful you didn't beat him up going up to 75th mm-hmm. Street or whatever. And we just had a great time. And and That's great. Harking back to your story about writing, that's one of the things he talked about, the importance of writing. Mm. Writing every day, um, 
being, he writes on a legal pad too, lying on his bed, which kills me. Right. He doesn't, or a regular typewriter. He doesn't use a computer, no. but he writes by hand. And he talked about being prepared to go on the talk shows like Johnny Carson. He said, I knew every second of everything I was going to do. I was completely prepared. The questions were there. And he goes, when you go out there, you really better know what you, you, you're going to do. It's all yeah. really good advice. And hey. he ended up just really being allergic to stand-up. He didn't like it later, right? And I don't know if it was a stage fright thing or he just didn't like the, the art of it after he started making movies and stuff. Yeah, he, it just didn't... Uh, the traveling and the this and the Vegas and because he was he was hit or miss his albums are hysterical he was hysterical but you know there were nights he would go out in Vegas and they just wouldn't buy the little Nebuchadnezzar Jewish guy yeah. which he never was that was a character that he created mm -hmm. a la Bob Hope mm -hmm. yeah, he, he credits Bob Hope he, he credits Bob Hope with having supplied him the character he just updated the jokes and made it the fish out of water kind of a a, a genre he he did a short little they honored Bob Hope at Lincoln Center one night. I was there and Woody made about a 10 or 15 minute film comparing Bob Hope's movies to his movies and showed the similarities. Wow. Interesting. Between his character and Bob Hope's character. It's quite a little a nice little night when they honored Bob Hope there. Hey, Mark, did you realize that you are on our 100th show? I did not. It's a little celebratory today in here. We have some pastries. Do you know where yeah. did you? Where did? What are we going to be enjoying? And Mark, if you were here, well, you she would goes get to pastry. get the baked goods from Porto's in Los I, Angeles. That means that she spent nine hundred and forty dollars on donuts. I don't have a car for you, Mark, but I do have a pastry. If uh, you come over, listen. That's so, that. Yeah. So the legendary Porto's. Okay. Um, the one I go to is in um, in Burbank. There's a few locations now. I think the original Hollywood was in Hollywood Way and Magnolia Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's is that yours, our, Fritz? What mm -hmm. is on our platter? So um, we have an almond croissant. Wow. Uh, pineapple empanada. We'll send uh, one over, Mark. The famous guava and cheese strudel. Oh. I had that. Uh, fruit yeah. tart, mango mousse, and I believe that's like a French opera cake, they call it. What? Opera cake. Yeah. It's a little too high for me. <laughs> hey, while we're waiting for the baked goods, tell us about your podcast. You don't know Schiff. By the way, let me just tell you about bakeries very quickly. There's one called Magnolia. Have you ever heard of it? No. Yeah. Okay. Magnolia's on, I think, Third Street, like off of La Cienega or something. You've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable, this place. Well, they, we were uh, surprised that uh, Dina could get into Porto's because I've never been there when there wasn't a line around the block to get in there. Do they have a mobile app? Uh, I think they use Chow Now. Okay, Chow Now. Tell us about your podcast, my friend. You yeah. don't know Schiff. Right. And we worked for a month and a half coming up with that title. It was the easiest <laughs> title in the world, but that, that's what I, we came up with thousands of titles and finally hit on You Don't Know Schiff. And I do it with Lil Benjamin, my uh, co-host. There you go there. It's Lil Benjamin. And We've had great guests on there. Kevin Nealon, Riser, Susie Essman, Robert Wall, Seinfeld's going to do it. We just dropped George uh, George Wallace this week. We have two evenings, Bobby Slayton. Riser. We have, uh, yeah, um, Maurice LaMarche, who does 500 Voices. I know it. Yeah, Canadian guy. He used to open for Howie Mandel in concert that's all the time. Right, that's right. And this guy named Joey Feldman, who's an artist, and he he's on there. Um, Joey's an interesting story because he was homeless living in a TV crate. And uh, he's one of the most successful artists now. 
around. Well, do you when, do this from your home or do you go to a podcast? I do it from right where I am now in my office. I'm in this little, uh, my little office here. This is, uh, this is my yeah, little look at that. Oh, thank you for the tour. That's lovely. You've just been a delight, Mark. We would love to have Always you. Always love working with you, my friend. You're one of the nicest guys and you have great, oh. very entertaining stories. And I love your stand-up because you, you do, you have, I don't want to say a hangdog expression, but a deadpan expression that delivers your snappers like, boom! All right, here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediapathPodcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guest, Mark Schiff. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman and Mark Schiff, and we will see you along the media path.